And from time to time, I am privileged to enter into the conversation with the teaching team about the scripture that we are pondering, the scripture that we are attempting to integrate into our lives. I do have a confession to make. I'm a little bit hungover this morning. It's from the Razorback game. <laughs> Nothing else. Um, my daughters, Josie and Clary, had such a fun time last night watching me go up and down and up and down because I'm usually uh, a very, very uh, quiet individual, but not last night. And as John Ray said last week in talking about Genesis 1 and the creation narrative, it's all good. It's all good. We're going to continue that conversation today about the creation narrative we're going to look at chapters 2 and 3. And as we do this, I want to be able to present this in a way that is fresh. Because when we get to these passages, in particular chapter 3 of Genesis, we have a story that in some cases has some baggage that goes along with it. Now, I did come from a faith tradition that liked to talk a lot about the fall, the fall of mankind. And Genesis 3 is one of those places where if you're reading a Bible, physically reading a Bible, there's probably going to be a subheading that says the temptation and the fall. Now, I have no dispute theologically with that concept I'm the first to admit I am fallen. I'm the first to admit I'm depraved, the depravity of man. But I want to try today to look at this account in a fresh way that we see more than something that I would call the regret from my childhood, the remorse from my childhood when this story came up as if we had fallen and now spent the last Centuries and centuries and centuries trying to crawl our way back out of the pit we fell into, back into the grace of God, and see that there's something more here than just that concept. I always make this disclaimer when I teach, as others do, that just because I'm the person who stands closest to the microphone today, and I'm the person who may be reading the most of the Scripture does not mean that I believe I have any special insight apart from you and apart from the conversation that our teaching team is having. And today I want to broaden that disclaimer, which is something lawyers love to do. I want to broaden the disclaimer to say a little bit more about that. Now there are people in our midst here who are seminary trained, um, who have terminal degrees in theological studies. You saw James Covington, one of our, our new friends here. You know, someone like John Farthing, who spent his life teaching theology. There are people here in our midst who have spent years of their lives on the mission field. They have taken the gospel to dark places, to unknown places, places with different languages and different cultures. I am not qualified 
as they are to speak to some of the theological issues that are present in the Genesis account. I believe that if we were to read through this account, we could find any number of theological questions that we could all wrestle with. And the truth is, the scholars that have looked at this for generations have different theories about why things are said the way they are said in Genesis. But what I would like to hone in on are the same things that John Ray, our teaching elder, talked about last week in looking at Genesis 1. What does this tell us about the nature of God? And what does this illuminate for us right here, right now, today, about God being with us? I'll give you an example from my my professional experience, which is 23 years of private practice, which have taught me that despite all of the concepts and theories and principles that I deal with on a day-to-day basis, often the resolution of disputes or the resolution of an issue comes down to a very simple story. Some of you may be from the part of the state, um, southwest Arkansas, Miller County, and know something about Texarkana. Texarkana, Arkansas is a very unique place because the street that is the main street in Texarkana is actually on the state line between Arkansas and Texas. In fact, if you are to go into the federal courthouse in Texarkana, the boundary between Arkansas and Texas runs right through the middle of the courthouse so that you can literally stand in both states in the middle of the courthouse. I became involved in a case as a very young lawyer that eventually formed a lot of the ways that I went in my career. Because as a young lawyer, there was a challenge to a particular statute that benefited Texarkana because In Texarkana, the state of Texas on the Texas side has no income tax. But in Arkansas, we have an income tax. And so the reality is a city like that divided by a street, tax here, no tax here. There is obviously a great incentive if you live in Arkansas, to simply move across the street and therefore pay no taxes. So the Arkansas General Assembly passed a law called the Border City Tax Exemption, which allowed the residents of Texarkana to not have to pay income tax. They paid one cent more in sales tax, but they would be exempt from state income tax, which is different from any other person in the state of Arkansas. And so a lawsuit was filed saying that's unconstitutional because it treats the same people similarly situated in a different way. For example, the lawsuit said that if you live in West Memphis, you ought to have the benefit of the same tax law because the state of Tennessee has favorable tax laws, that kind of thing. 
So there were a number of constitutional issues involved, and as a young lawyer, this would have been my first case in front of the Arkansas Supreme Court. But despite all of that constitutional principles and issues, it really came down to one story. His name was Leroy, Leroy Autry. Lifetime resident of Texarkana, Arkansas, a city attorney who I worked with in defending this statute and defending Texarkana, he was the most passionate man I've ever met about a lawsuit. And he would say things to me like, Chris, we have got to win this war. And he would say, I am just as much a Razorback fan as anybody in Little Rock or Fayetteville, wherever they be, and we have got to win this. And what he was saying to me was, you've got to save my home. Because he really believed, and I think he was right, that without that tax exemption, the city of Texarkana, Arkansas, would dry up and go away. And so, although it was somewhat of a burden for me, I took on that mantra for him to know that what we were doing in this lawsuit was about saving Leroy's home. And so as we look at Genesis 2 and 3 today, I'm going to ask you to help me talk about the real story, saving the home. And as Aloha said in a prayer before we got started today for the teaching team, she said, this is a love story that comes out of our mess and I really don't think I can say it any better. If we want to use terminology like the fall and the temptation, that's fine with me, but let's go deeper than that. And even though the statements we may make about this may be quite simple, please go there with me. Because I think this is so much more than the story of the fall. So let me do this in reading through this story. I'm first going to read through some passages from chapter 2, and then I'd like to talk about some central truths from chapter 2, and then I'm going to move on to chapter 3 of Genesis. So I'll begin Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the earth and heavens, now no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The Lord God planted an orchard in the east, in Eden, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow from the soil, every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for food. Parenthetically, now the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
were in the middle of the orchard. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the orchard in Eden to care for it and to maintain it. Then the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat fruit from every tree of the orchard, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. Out of this story, I begin with what I believe are some central truths. And the first one is, God formed us as he formed Adam. It's important to note here that the word formed is not the same word as created or made, as John Ray talked about in the first chapter of Genesis. It is instead more of a proactive word, an action word, to be something akin to a potter who is forming clay to make something beautiful. It's not a magic wand, poof, there is the person, there is the man. And it's not like something that looks like an envelope that we put into a microwave and press a button and three, months, <laughs> three minutes later, we have a bag of popcorn. Three months later, we have a very dangerous fire situation in our home. It is carefully made. It is the potter forming the beautiful person. And so God formed us in a way that was conscious, divine consciousness. It was intentional. And it's a work of art. And that's you. The second principle that I want to talk about is that God breathed life into us. The Hebrew word here denotes both life and spirit. So that by breathing life into us, we are not only given the means of being physically alive, but being spiritually alive. And the picture is of God not just spinning us into motion as being alive, but that God himself would be breathed into us. The essence of God breathed into you. Making us different from any other part of this creation story. And one of the wonderful things that I found as I studied this um, story this week is that there is a direct parallel of this concept of breathing into us the life and spirit of God in the New Testament. There was this time, this very intense time, Jesus had been crucified. He had risen from the grave but his disciples had not seen him yet. He had appeared to Mary Magdalene, and next he appeared to his disciples. And in the Gospel of John, 
it says that the disciples had locked the doors and they were hiding from the religious establishment. We don't know if they were hiding because they were simply afraid or if they were full of shame. We don't know. But from the Gospel of John, in Beginning in verse 19, it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the disciples had gathered together and locked the doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. And the scholars tell us that the the word for breathe here from the Greek, again, has this dual meaning of life and spirit. And there really is no English word that captures both. But here we see, I think, what John Ray said last week is that the the creation narrative foreshadows everything that is to come. And here Jesus is using that same same breathing into the lives of the disciples to overcome the fear, but to become not just disciples in his time, but but to be disciples for all time just as we are to be ministers and disciples. Not simply because we are created by God, but because he has himself breathed into us his life, his essence. So let's, let's read on in the story into chapter 3 with these two principles in mind that we are formed And that God has breathed life into us. And here is where we get to the fall. And as we read this, think about your own story. Maybe a time when you listened to a voice that was inconsistent with God. Or that was opposed to God. A voice that led to self-destruction. And think about what your reaction was when you had disobeyed God. So chapter 3 begins this way in verse 1. Now the serpent, who Paul later calls the serpent of treachery, was more shrewd than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Is it really true that God said, you must not eat from any tree of the orchard? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit from the trees of the orchard. But concerning the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the orchard, God said, you must not eat from it and you must not touch it or else you will die. The serpent said to the woman, surely you will not die. For God knows that when you eat from it, 
your eyes will be open and you will be like divine beings who know good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree produced fruit that was good for food, was attracted to the eye and was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the orchard at the breezy time of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the orchard. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The man replied, I heard you moving about in the orchard, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord God said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Now, gentlemen, if we've been through all of this, um, if you're like me, you're thinking, this starts to sound very, very familiar. So the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman replied, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. Later on in chapter 3, although they weren't put in the lesson plan this week, there's first of all a reference to the fact that God took sacrificial skins and covered Adam and Eve. There is also a much more vivid picture later in chapter 3 of the consequences of their disobedience. But what I would like to concentrate on here is what is the reaction? What is the path of shame when we are disobedient to God? Does God leave? Does God abandon us? And so the third thing that I want to say is that God does not abandon us, even though our response is to hide. Our response is to run. Now, this is, again, what we have traditionally called the fall, the fall of Adam and Eve. And if you Google that, you're going to see, you know, 500 pictures of Adam and Eve taking of the fruit and a little picture of the serpent whispering in Eve's ear. And that's all true. And I believe that. And I know from personal experience that sin has painful consequences. But this does not change the narrative of redemption present in chapter 3. God promised Adam and Eve that he would be with them. And he was. And he was even pursuing them. Even as they were hiding even as they were running away. We also see this pattern of redemption played out in the Old Testament and other stories. 
where the people will attempt to atone to God in their own ways, in their own coverings. And God comes along and says, no, it's not your way, it's my way. And this is the covenant. You see, Genesis 3 may be about the fall and our lore, but it's the gospel. When I think about the gospel story, I immediately go to, what, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Pauline epistles, and that's where you're going to find the gospel. But what's happened for me this week is I have rested in this as I talked to Alex about it, as I talked to Feli about it. This is the gospel. The, the song remains the same. The story remains the same from beginning to end. It is God with us, even in our shame response. Even in our desire to pass the buck to somebody else, for a man to pass the buck to the woman, for the woman to pass the buck to the serpent. The truth is, there is no serpent that can separate us from the love of God. And that, my friends, is good news. As I... um, received word this week that, um, I shouldn't say it that way, as I accepted the invitation to do this today, John Ray sent me an email, and classic John Ray, he just said, I really think you're the man for the job, I know you're busy, and he said, just don't overthink it. And I was thinking, John, do you know me? Do you know me? I, I have a tendency to overthink. I have a tendency to get into the paralysis of analysis. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to make the disclaimer about the theological questions, because I really want you to understand I'm bringing this to you with my heart and my experience. And what I hope for so much from this is that we can all integrate our own personal story with the creation narrative in Genesis 3. Not as a matter of remorse or regret or guilt or shame, but that we are redeemed by a creator who pursues us in love. Last night and this morning, I probably watched the replay of Austin Allen making the touchdown about 50 times. And as I came to 28-28 this morning, I said to myself, you know, I need, I need to go back to Genesis 3 over and over again. Not just with the slogans or the pictures, but how long has it been since I actually read this? and saw how God responded to that pathway of shame and sin. It was great to watch Austin Allen, because I'm on this side of the fence, maybe not so good from the other side, but you know, I saw him get hit and hit, and he kept going, and his teammates, his offensive linemen were you know, gathering around him as he got near the end zone, and it suddenly was just this 
cosmic push into the end zone. You gotta find a theological implication in all of this, right? And for me, as I reflected on it, it was like that. It was taking the hits, taking the setbacks, the guilt from sin, and recognizing that I was not alone in that journey. And that I would be propelled forward not in isolation, but in community. I've shared with many of you, I've shared with the Discovering Grace classes, I've even shared with this group inside this building about some of the struggles I've had in my own life. Some of those struggles very... um, unfortunately causing me to be separated from the church for a period of time. But not because I was banished, but because I was running. Because I was afraid. I was full of shame and I wanted to hide. And part of the process of coming to own our sin and coming to own the consequences of sin is embracing this story from Genesis 3. The cultural message is that we are self-made. That our successes in life, from a cultural standpoint, are based on what we do, how we perform, how productive we are. But the cultural message is not the message of God. He is with us. And I'm all for effort. I'm all for hard work. Some people call me a workaholic. But in the kingdom of God, I do not earn anything. I am. Someone who would pass the buck. I am someone who would hide but I have been found. I'm going to ask the teaching team to come come back up and join us again. And as we do that, I just want to, first of all, thank you for being here today. Thank you for being so attentive. I just want to encourage you to embrace creation narrative as your own. Fifteen years ago. For those of us who are old enough to remember it in person or watching it on CNN, we were subjected to a hostile act of hatred which so vividly demonstrated how people can listen to the wrong voices so vividly demonstrated how the human race can turn completely against God. The one event in our history that has its name by just the date of the month, the month and the day, it was that bad, it was that intense on 9-11, 15 years ago. I even considered, as I was thinking about the lesson today, maybe having a you know, a picture of the Twin Towers that day. 
just to remember how devastating it was. But I chose not to. I think the the powers of hatred and evil and terrorism in our world would want us to do that. To graphically remember how terrible it was. To relive it for its own purposes. But I felt like what was so much more appropriate is to remember the reality of that day. But then to think only about Genesis and the creation narrative and the story and the redemptive nature of God because that is our story. We're going to take communion here this morning and we do this a little differently at Grace. If you're new, we don't um, do this by rows. We don't have some sort of system in place to take communion. Just come as you are led. And we invite anyone who is seeking Christ to join in this table. We'll also take an offering, which is an expression of love and redemption for the community. But as you approach this table today, I'm going to encourage you just to not only think about your day-to-day struggles but to think cosmically to the original story, creation account, the creation narrative, as your own story. It's a story of redemption. And it's a story that says we are not alone. We are not to live out these things in isolation, but instead within the community of faith.